welcome back to FinTech Business Podcast. I'm here today with Rex Salisbury, founding partner at Cambrian Ventures. Rex started Cambrian as a FinTech community in 2015 and grew it to thousands of members, uh, including having monthly events in San Francisco and New York, annual summits, job fairs, and more. Rex also served as a partner at Fame venture capital firm Andreessen Horowitz, uh, where he worked to build out the FinTech vertical, including the firm's FinTech newsletter, which I can vouch is a must read if you don't already. At Cambrian, he's now raised a $20 million fund to focus on investing in fintechs at the angel, pre-seed, and seed stages. Rex, welcome. Thank you so much for taking the time. Honestly, I have so many questions, I don't even know where to start. So I guess let's start with the obvious and you know, give us a little bit of background on the origins of Cambrian Ventures and sort of what you're focused on now. Well, first, Jason, thanks so much um, for having me. Big fan of all the things you do in the ecosystem and your writing. So it's great, great to be here. Uh, in terms of the, the question, like the backstory of Cambrian Ventures, so Cambrian today, as you mentioned, is a venture fund where I focus on investing, usually first check in to um, fintech companies that are building businesses generally in the US, although some are, are building internationally. But the backstory of how I got here is kind of accidental in some sense in that I um, was a software engineer working at a direct consumer mortgage company under a CTO who was one of the ex-founders of SoFi, and I was building an interesting product in fintech. And I was like, oh, I bet you there are other people doing interesting work, um, building new technologies in this kind of broken, weird system we call uh, financial services. And so I started doing, and I was in San Francisco in the time, uh, I started doing these small monthly events for kind of founders and builders in fintech. So think product managers, engineers, and, and people at young companies. And at our very first monthly event, we actually had someone um, from the Plaid team demoing the Plaid API, my team demoing something we'd built at the, the mortgage company, and then also someone demoing an app they built on top of, on top of Plaid. Uh, and this was like a really special time, I think, in the fintech ecosystem. It was circa 2015 when it was just becoming a uh, you know, sizable category, but there hadn't been that much work done to start coalescing the community. And so the folks I started bringing together were just excited to continue to do that. So we kept doing events on roughly a monthly cadence. And then before I knew it, you know, we had 15,000 newsletter subscribers, 5,000 meetup members. Um, today, I also run a Slack community that has um, 1,500 fintech founders uh, in it. But this was all something that I just started as a passion project as you know, a software engineer working in fintech, wanting to meet and learn from other folks in the ecosystem. And then I got to the point where I was like, you know, I'm getting a lot more energy um, from doing this ecosystem level work than I am from doing my uh, day job, so to speak. And so I started thinking about ways that I could go full time on, um, you know, the Cambrian, the community, and uh, actually realized that doing venture investing was a, a really good way of, of being able <laughs> to do a lot of the work I'd already been doing. And I've been pulled into investing and advising. So I actually quit my day job. Um, I think it's around 2019, and I was planning to continue to run Cambrian, the community, for a while um, while raising a small fund. But right, like literally a few weeks into um, quitting and getting started on Cambrian full time, uh, the Andreessen Horowitz team reached out, who I got to know through the community, and said, Hey, we're starting a fintech vertical. We've done a ton of fintech investing, but we haven't actually verticalized our fintech team. 
we'd love to bring you on as the kind of first partner um, we hire externally to help build out that practice. And so, uh, you know, being someone who um, really loves the the fintech ecosystem and loves working with smart people, it's like you know this is probably a pretty good opportunity to work with some of the the smartest people in, in the business and learn a lot um, about what's going on in the ecosystem. And so decided that made a lot of sense uh, and worked primarily on investing there, but also to an extent, you know, verticalizing the operating side of the house. And uh, as you mentioned, helped start the uh, FinTech newsletter. I, funny story there, when it, when it started, I actually used to write like the whole thing, uh, but then I gradually looped in the team. I think that was just the first three issues. And now um, it's much better because it actually includes voices of all of the team members. Um, usually, sometimes all of them, but usually three to four of them will write kind of meaningful, meaty pieces uh, on a monthly cadence about something um, topical that month, but also has kind of more long-term trend implications. And so if you haven't checked out their newsletter, I encourage you to do so. But but after about two years uh, at A16Z, I got back to my roots, which was I wanted to go full-time on Cambrian and focus on investing at the very early stage. Had an amazing experience at Andreessen Horowitz, but realized that where I was kind of most differentiated in the ecosystem was working with founders very early on. Um, and the kind of community I built gave me this ability to be a piece of connective tissue, both individually, but also through like the, the networks I built through Cambrian um, that are particularly helpful for a founder at the earliest stages. Um, because the fintech ecosystem is sizable and there are lots of people who have great networks because they've been in it for a long time, but it's grown so quickly that if you're an early stage founder figuring out like what relationships, um, partners and customers may exist for your kind of new idea can be very hard. Whereas I'm, you know, every day talking to people in the ecosystem, it can help turn over stones that might be really, really valuable. Um, and so that's why I decided to go back out and focus uh, solely on doing early stage investing. And we, I also, I'm a non-lead investor now uh, that I'm outside of Andreessen Horowitz. I usually write like a $500,000 initial check, which is usually the second biggest check after the lead investor. And that also means that I can be very collaborative in the ecosystem in terms of involving uh, other venture investors, involving other angels uh, in the round and just providing kind of a different point of view uh, as an investor who is focused just on this stage and not necessarily in like doing um, later rounds. And then the biggest thing about the fund is um, it itself has kind of a community oriented bent to it in that our investors are comprised um, largely of founders of other fintech companies. So some of the founders who are investors in the fund include um, folks from SoFi, uh, Betterment, Blend, Plaid, uh, the list goes on. And we have a bunch of folks who represent expertise across, you know, across uh, consumer fintech, wealth tech, infrastructure, lending, real estate. And so there's a lot of wealth of expertise to draw on um, from the, the founder LPs who often end up being um, co-investors in companies that we back or, you know, uh, advisors or kind of episodic um folks who jump in episodically to help out on things that are uniquely suited to, to serve. Uh, and so that's one of the coolest things about this is just having so many great people around the table through Cambrian, the fund, both as investors in the fund, but then also as the, you know, the founders of the portfolio companies. So that's how I kind of accidentally went from being uh, a software engineer to a community person to, to then being a venture capitalist. Oh, that is a amazing overview. And I mean, I think if there's one, 
uh, sort of theme that I'm pulling out of that. It's about community. You know, and I'll I'll be honest. You know, when I had more traditional, you know, single full time roles. Uh, and you know, you know as well as I do that if you're working at whether it's a, a startup or you know a bank that is focused on using technology to, um, you know, digitalize their financial services, you know, these tend to be not eight hour a day jobs. Maybe it's 10, 11, 12 hours a day. I found that it was you know rare that I would have enough time and energy to you know sort of invest in and engage in know, in the community. And I actually lived in San Francisco in 2015 when, when you were kicking this off. Um, and, you know, one of the luxuries I have now uh, is being able to spend time doing those things, whether it's virtually, and I found various Slack communities to be immensely helpful uh, and people in FinTech being extremely generous in sharing their time and sharing their knowledge and sharing their connections. And it seems that that aspect, the community aspect, is sort of the core differentiator of uh, of the fund of Cambrian. I mean, you often hear this cliche that you know capital is a commodity. Uh, although I suppose maybe people's feelings on that have shifted in the last nine or so months, um, and that it's you know something else that comes with the investor that is really the differentiator. You know, it looks like you've spent years, you know, personally and through Cambrian building a wide network of people. Uh, and of course, as you mentioned, the the LPs in the fund itself are entrepreneurs, are founders in, in the fintech ecosystem. You know, why does that matter? How is it going to help the portfolio companies that you invest in? Yeah, I think it helps along a variety of dimensions. And, and the community work I do now um, in Cambrian still benefits the ecosystem. So like the Slack community is probably one of the most active things um, right now about Cambrian. And there are 1,500 plus fintech founders in there. And obviously, uh, most of them are not LPs in the fund or <laughs> portfolio companies. And so it's a great place where founders come together and ask questions of each other um, to which there might not be obvious answers. Or even if you kind of know the answers, you might need to get like an up-to-date view on what the current state of the world is. So I'm looking actually just from some questions that came through last week, for example, and it's a founder asking about, okay, like what sponsor banks provide FBO accounts? So you may actually know which sponsor banks provide FBO accounts already. What you probably don't know is like what other founders from what other fintech companies have built on top of those partner banks in the last six to 12 months and what has their experience been mm -hmm. or what founders have built on top of them in the last three to four years are now kind of more mature and at scale. And is that still working for them? And that's the kind of information you can't really find just by like Googling, or even if you're like very smart in the space, it's very, that, that information just doesn't live except in kind of people's minds. But it's incredibly important for you to understand the answers to those questions as you're going out and building a business. So that I think helps create a lot of value just for the entire ecosystem and help people get to better answers uh, more quickly. But then, you know, for the <clears throat> I the founders that I actually end up backing, I'm kind of, you know, constantly monitoring, uh, monitoring what's going on both in like the Slack community, but also in the ecosystem at large. And I tend to invest um, not exclusively, but primarily in B2B fintechs. I think especially for those um, kinds of companies, there are just so many opportunities for connectivity into the fintech ecosystem. 
Um, I like to say that fintech versus, you know, like enterprise or consumer technology, there's just more of a need for community because it's so in interconnected. It's so highly regulated. Whenever you build a business, you're actually relying on, you know, an infrastructure partner, probably channel partners, advisors, regulatory council. And so there's just so much reason why you should be talking to other folks in the ecosystem. And so by kind of my you know seat in the middle where I see all these conversations happening, I'm able to facilitate a lot of connectivity um, pretty quickly, uh, which is hugely valuable. So I, my goal is always to be the most helpful uh, investor I can. And usually that's not because of the things I know personally, although there's some of that, it's about me knowing who is the right person to go and talk to for a very specific thing. Um, and then that enables me to find, help people find, you know, like the best infrastructure partners or providers for them, initial customers, initial channel partners, all of that and more. And so that's how I think about kind of the ability to, to leverage the community to support both the ecosystem, but then in particular, um, the companies uh, we end up supporting. That's interesting. I mean, I think that that's a great point where there's, you know, some pieces of knowledge that are easy to crystallize and express, you know, in the form of like documentation, right? So if you need to understand something about how whatever ACH works or how Swift works, you can probably Google that pretty easily. But then there's this sort of more uh, amorphous knowledge, the kinds of questions, um, you know, you describe where it's like, okay, well, you know, if I am picking sponsor bank A over sponsor bank B, how is that going to impact uh, my company over the life cycle of, you know, the product that I'm building? Maybe it's a better choice on day one, but to your point on, you know, day 1000, maybe there are problems I cannot anticipate now. And that type of, you know, almost sort of like intangible information is hard to, capture and consolidate and put somewhere that's, you know, easily Google, Googleable. Um, I'm curious, I mean, you've been very successful at building, you know, building a community. I would say, you know, before it was, before it was cool. Now everybody has a, a Slack group and, uh, you know, their own palette and job board and all of that. You know, you've been uh, successful at scaling that from a very early stage. Any advice for people, and not necessarily fintech or even necessarily technology specific, but any advice for people who are trying to build their own community, kinds of uh, tactics or tools that you've found helpful or successful in the course of your journey? Yeah, I think the number one thing is, first of all, communities thrive on authenticity. So if you want to start a community, it has to be something you're like authentically just very interested in. Uh, and that'll attract other people with a similar kind of mindset and approach. And then two, uh, related to that is it's totally fine to start very small, right? Uh, with kind of a highly engaged group of individuals who are passionate about something uh, and let it grow from there. Uh, as opposed to trying to like start in a really, really big way. And so for me, you know, like the very first event I did was like, I'm a software engineer. I'm leveraging these new APIs to automate mortgage underwriting. I want to talk to like a few other people who are building or leveraging APIs to build things in fintech. And that was just a, one event that we did. And from that kind of kernel, a lot of stuff uh, came forth. And that wasn't because I had like architected it or been thinking about like, how do I turn this into like a, a larger thing? It was more that it was a small group of kind of very 
uh, interesting people who are like authentic to the problem. And it just kind of grew, grew from there. And so that those would be my two, two things. And then in terms of like the more, more tactical stuff, I, one thing that's hard about communities is they shift over time. And so I think the hardest thing is as it continues to grow, what kind of worked or made sense at first may not always make sense uh, in the future. So for for me, for example, one of the big things we used to do is monthly uh, events in San Francisco, and then the pandemic happened, and mm -hmm. I actually haven't done any monthly events. And so the the Slack community was actually born during the the pandemic. So I guess the the third lesson, you know, the first two would be one, be authentic; two, start small; three is you are going to have to change. Uh, and reinvent what the community means over time. And I think the the latest reinvention for me in terms of what the community has meant has been laying on Cambrian Ventures, the fund, mm -hmm. um, to leverage kind of a lot of the, the networks and relationships and connectivity I built out through the community um, to support companies uh, in a new capacity. Yeah, I mean, I, I think the, you know, the digital and remote nature, not that, you know, not that we didn't always have these tools, right? You know, LinkedIn and Twitter and Slack and, you know, now Discord and, and all these sort of next generation of platforms. Uh, but I think it, you know, it really was uh, obviously turbocharged by the pandemic. And even now as in-person events come back, you know, I think that a lot of the sort of like center of these communities in, in a lot of cases exists in that that digital space and then you have the opportunity hopefully to meet people you know in person i know that that personally i find going to conferences you know in real life so much more valuable because i already know a lot of people from from things like twitter and maybe i've never met them in person but then it makes those experiences when you do get to to meet in person, so much more rewarding because you feel like you already know somebody, uh, which I think is you know amazing. Um, there is another thread I want to pull on here a little bit, which is related to the community aspect, but actually a bit distinct, um, and that's around sort of media and storytelling. You know, we talked a little bit about uh, the fintech newsletter at at Andreessen, uh, and you know, I've always that's actually. One of the examples I always point to when I'm talking about this topic, which is the ability of companies, and it could be a VC firm, you know, it could be a bank, uh, it could be you know a corporate in a totally different category, but the ability to directly tell their story without requiring uh, the intermediation of the press. So instead of going to you know Fast Company or the Wall Street Journal. You know, or Bloomberg or wherever, you know, now, you know, a VC fund or a bank can publish their own newsletter, publish their own podcast, you know, get on YouTube. Um, and I, that strategy seems like it's becoming increasingly common. I'd be curious to hear you unpack that a little bit, you know, maybe talk through some of the benefits and risks of putting yourself out there like that, you know, as, you know, as a company. Uh, and perhaps more importantly, you know, what do you need to do to be successful in in that kind of approach? Yeah, and I'm curious. Do you want to pull on the thread of like as a venture firm or as a, an operating company? Because both are kind of interesting to to think about. Uh, whichever one you want to speak to. I mean, I I would imagine you have more experience on the venture side, but I think they're both really relevant. Yeah, no. So I mean, <clears throat> it is something that. Uh, to state the obvious that social media has made it possible to build your own social media plus just the internet has made it possible to build your own direct audiences 
communicate your messages. I will say one of the biggest things I learned from Andreessen Horowitz about how they do things differently is they have built a brand um, that is in large part um, created because of their strong media presence. So like years ago, people used to joke, and maybe some people still do, that A16Z is a media company that monetizes through venture. Um, and they have a whole <laughs> editorial staff, um, you know, several different podcasts that they run. They now literally own their own media publication, which I think was launched last year, Future um, mm -hmm. by A16Z. And so all of that gives you an incredible ability to tell your own story um, to an audience without any sort of intermediary. And if you think about A16Z did a lot of things that were different from traditional venture companies. Um, they first kind of espouse different values around how precisely they are going to be founder-centric. Um, they also build out a huge operating side of the house. So A16Z is going to finish the year at about 500 employees. Um, and by the way, 50 billion in assets under management. Most of those employees are not on the investing side of the house. They're actually broken down into market development, talent, corporate development, um, PR and comms, uh, as well as some other functional areas. And those folks are committed to helping support the portfolio companies that A16Z invest in. So anyways, those are several things that A16Z did that were very different from other, other um, firms of the era, although a lot more have started to kind of move in that direction. I think arguably the place where they did something different that has created the most value for the firm is in owning and creating a brand that's powered in large part by their control of kind of media um, by doing all of their their writing, their blog. I mean, it started out in many ways as Mark's Twitter account, right? Like that was mm -hmm. the the kernel of the idea that led to like owning much more of a, a presence um, and audience for the firm. And that's been incredibly valuable to the platform because entrepreneurs understand who A16Z is, what they do and why they do it. And A16Z gets to tell that story um, versus other folks in the in the ecosystem. So I will say that that has been an incredibly powerful thing uh, for A16Z. I, I do not know that any firm, other firm has come close to doing it. So I guess the, <laughs> the, the lesson there to some extent is like, yes, it's incredibly powerful, but two is, um, I mean, Andreessen Horowitz is kind of number one in terms of having figured out how to do that mm -hmm. by a long I mean, shot. My, my very, very amateur armchair impression is that it requires the you know dedication and resources, right? Which which <laughs> clearly Andreessen had. I think in a very different vertical, I'll, I'll uh, plug 11FS. I mean, they have a similar sort of dedication to essentially having an entire media company that is, you know, whatever, one third of their business. Um, mm -hmm. And I would, I would imagine, you know, particularly for, you know, smaller or earlier stage, whether it's an operating company or a fund, you know, I could imagine it's difficult to justify, you know, the expense, the personnel for something that might be perceived as, you know, a distraction from your core competency. But, you know, as we've discussed, if if executed well, it becomes a very, very powerful uh, tool. Uh, I mean, I think- Yeah, Anna... the, the reality is for most companies, you know, even up to the series B or C, the amount of investment, both of time, financial and human capital to get something like this to scale uh, 
is significant. That doesn't mean you can't prioritize, you know, thinking about telling your story in other ways, but to do like, you know, a full blown effort in this is, is quite hard. But then I do think you see some companies who really invest a lot when they get to kind of a, a growth stage and thinking about how to build out the kind of community and media layer. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Uh, I mean, to, to bring the sort of community plus media uh, businesses back to uh, the core topic, which is your fund, you know, uh, I've heard some, you know, analysis or some criticism, including on one of my favorite podcasts, uh, Odd Lots, about the idea of the like the rise of the Substack fund manager and the idea that, you know, as a you know, quote unquote influencer, you know, people are going out and raising 5 million, 10 million micro funds or operating as solo GPs. And the, I'm, I'm paraphrasing. So hopefully, uh, hopefully Joe Weisenthal isn't listening to this. Um, <laughs> the, the, the form of his critique was like, you know, capital was flush, you know, times were good. It was easy to raise money. You know, those uh, solo GPs probably distributed a lot of money when the market was high. You know, they didn't have pricing power. They were just following in, you know, other folks' rounds. Now climate has changed. They're probably in for a hard time. Like, I'm curious to hear your thoughts, you know, given especially your time at Andreessen, plus where you know what you're working on now, sort of what what is the role of you know, whether it's smaller sized funds, whether it's a solo GP, or even sort of the angel list syndicate world, you know, how do you see that uh, in today's landscape and evolving going forward? Yeah, so I think um, so there, there are a bunch of different things in that um, to potentially unpack. And so the First on the criticism angle is like, what is the precise criticism? Is it that these are poor places to park your money if you're an LP? Is it that there is like too much capital in the ecosystem? Like there are all these kind of strange criticisms, but I will say like the higher level thing is like, yes, the barriers to creating a venture firm uh, to some extent have come down. Uh, and that's a good thing, right? There should be more ways of being in the ecosystem and ultimately, that, that will lead to some experiments that are failed and don't work out well, but it'll also lead to other um, ways in which people are creating new things that provide new value to the ecosystem that wouldn't exist if the only people who could start venture funds were you know, billionaires. And so we mm -hmm. now live in a world where that's not the case. Um, and that's, that is, by and large, a very, very good thing. Um, people, for instance, talk about like the need for diversity in venture capital. Well, if you look at who the kind of billionaires are or people with, you know, $100 million, I don't know that you're going to find the group of people you want to be kind of the next generation of venture investors kind of weighted however you might want that to be in that kind of current cohort of people. So you need to have barriers come down to allow that to happen. Uh, and then two, not just like the barriers have come down, but it also means that you don't need as large of an apparatus to run and operate uh, your kind of endeavor because there's so many great software platforms as well as services platforms that you can plug into to let you get up and running. And that allows you as an investor um, to rigorously specialize on what you're really good at. So I don't know if you know Ronald Coase, who's um, 
an economist, but his like most famous theory is the, the theory of the firm. And the firm, the theory of the firm goes something like this, where uh, a firm is an entity whose internal transaction costs are greater than their external transaction costs, right? And so you start aggregating things into an entity until it becomes so big and complex that the external transaction costs and negotiations um, are cheaper than trying to like internalize it, right? And so that's why you have specialization, et cetera. Mm -hmm. um, used to be a venture firm needed to get to a certain size because you had to have a finance department, you had to have like a mm -hmm. back office team, you had to have like in-house legal counsel, you had to have all this stuff. So you had to be pretty big as a firm. Now you don't have to do that. And so what that means is you're actually able to look inside of what was before a holistic unit and say, what are the atomic pieces that actually provide value uh, and that really need to stand on their own now that the kind of those internal transaction costs have actually been uh, mm -hmm. reduced uh, such that they can be externalized. And what you find is that venture is actually oftentimes largely about, not exclusively, you do have some mega firm. Now we're going to start talking about the future of venture capital, what that looks like. And <laughs> uh, I think Frank Rotman has a really good piece on this. He has a piece called the three body problem where he talks about um, that basically the Lagrange points, the stable points for what uh, the future of venture capital looks like. But anyways, if you start decomposing the venture firm, one of the atomic pieces is basically individual partners and their expertise and the relationships they have with companies. Uh, and oftentimes, I think at a lot of firms, what you're really getting is a partner uh, who understands and supports you. And if you're able to have um, kind of really highly specialized individuals uh, who bring a very distinct um, set of value to the table, it makes a lot of sense for them to be operating outside independently of um, much larger firms. Right, and that's made possible because of the change in the technology landscape and the services landscape for venture ecosystem, but also the awareness of founders in terms of oh, like yes, there are these people, they're strong, independent voices and networks who are incredibly valuable. And Frank Rotman says this, like you know, the the rise of the solo GP is someone who pound for pound is probably the most valuable or dollar for dollar the most valuable person on your cap table for a certain point in time. And so that's my goal, right, as a solo uh, GP is I'm not going out and leading rounds. I'm not taking a board seat. I'm not going to, you know, <clears throat> sit on your board for 10 years. But for the first two years of your company's formation, I am going to help you navigate some of the most important questions for the company, which are, who do I partner with? Who are my first customers? Who are my first hires? Who are the other investors, uh, either in this round or in future rounds? And that's actually something I'm able to better do outside of the confines of a larger firm. Mm -hmm. um, and I'm able to actually run my own firm now in part because of these landscape changes that have made it more valuable. And so I think that like this change is largely a good thing. Will there be some people who start firms whose value propositions like don't resonate, who don't generate good returns for LPs? Inevitably, yes. Um, but the market will eventually take care of that. Um, mm -hmm. It may take some time and have some kind of pain along the way, um, but I think by and large, it's it's a good thing. Uh, but that's another, I, I don't know, that's almost a whole <laughs> other podcast talking about like what are the, <laughs> and the TLDR I think is essentially you're going to have incredibly large brands. Like you look at the 1980s, you saw the rise of distinct types of asset managers um, just because there was something at the time that made sense for these things to grow. Like, Vanguard, BlackRock, Blackstone, mm -hmm. all founded around the same time. 
all around asset management, but in very different ways, right? Vanguard is like the totally passive. BlackRock has kind of less of a passive bent than Blackstone, more of a private equity. Now venture capital as an asset class is starting to institutionalize and grow. It used to be a cottage industry in terms of the total assets the industry controlled relative to other um, asset classes. Now it's actually become pretty sizable. And so you're going to see um, the rise of kind of the mega firms, the like mm-hmm. BlackRock's, mm-hmm. Vanguard's, and Blackstone's. And again, they're 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 not all analogous. They're all slightly different, right? And so you're going to see the firms like A16Z and Tiger and Sequoia, and they're all going to have different flavors, but they're probably going to get really, really big. And then conversely, you're also going to see these kind of very specialized independent groups who have a strong independent voice and role to play. That's another kind of stable point to use Frank Martin's terminology from his three-body problem. Um, <clears throat> and so it's going to be interesting to see exactly how that how that plays out. No, I mean, I'm, uh, I think fundamentally, I, I, you know, probably just agree with everything you say. Uh, no, but I mean, in the sense, (laughs) (laughs) in the sense that, you know, barriers to entry are lowered, uh, enabling like a greater diversity of people to participate in, uh, the investing portion of the ecosystem, I think is, you know, fundamentally a good thing. And then to your point, if those funds are not, you know, if they don't have the differentiation or the capability to drive a return, like the market will correct, right? But the yep. dispersion of, you know, not having to make a pilgrimage to Sand Hill Road or, you know, only companies that are based in the Bay Area getting funded, it feels like that is firmly behind us. And like, I would posit that that is, you know, fundamentally a good thing. Um, yeah, yeah. Any, anytime there's a new way of doing things, people are like, oh, there, there's this new way people can do that thing poorly. And it's like, well, there's also this new way that people can do things well. And that's probably mm-hmm. the more important consideration because the failures will like work their ways out of the system, whereas the successes will continue to continue to grow. Uh, speaking of successes or hopeful future successes, um, you're planning on investing in about 30-ish companies, if I uh, understand correctly, with the fund that you've raised. Can you talk a little bit about the investment thesis, sort of what kinds of companies are you looking to invest in? I know you mentioned like a sort of US focus, but not exclusively consumer infrastructure. What are you What are you looking at? Yeah. So I, my number one thing is like, how do I identify really talented individuals? Because mm-hmm. when I'm investing in a company, it's usually one or two founders who's a few months in, they may not even be incorporated yet. Like they just have a deck. So it's really about the people. Um, and I think that's a great way to approach the ecosystem now because there are more talented individuals in the ecosystem than ever before. You know, there are 20, 30, depending on what numbers you want to look at, 100,000 people looking at fintech companies, many of whom have done two, three, or four tours of duty and have unique insights into industry about ideas um, that are kind of underserved and big opportunities. So really great people. They also have better tools than ever before. You know, 10 years ago, if you're Shamir Krakal looking to start mm-hmm. Simple Bank, it's like, what partner bank do I use? There are none. <laughs> it takes me two years to find one, right? Fast forward 10 years, it's like, which of the 20 banking as a service providers do I use? Or mm-hmm. which of the 30 partner banks do I go to, right? So um, now it's like, it's more about, okay, I have all these tools at my disposal. So if you got better people with better tools, and I would argue the market is actually the exact same size, 
you should back those people really, really early. So that's why I'm excited about primarily focusing on the people. But you know, the next generation of fintech companies isn't going to look like the last generation of great fintech companies. Although you know, the history sometimes rhymes, and so uh, even if it's it's not the exact same thing, there may be some you know lessons you can learn that are pretty closely correlated to the past. But in that, I'm seeing that a lot of the kind of most interesting companies are people who have this great um, kind of story of having worked in the industries at the Stripes, the Affirms, the the Klarna's, the you know all the kind of the credit cards, all the brand name large uh, fintech companies that have been successful, learn something new, and then they realize how they can take what they learned and apply it in some sort of intersectional way to another industry mm-hmm. that hasn't experienced um, as much disruption around like the digitization of finance. So I'm seeing a lot at the intersection of fintech and healthcare, a lot at the intersection of uh, fintech and HR tech, um, a lot of things that are kind of the next level of fintech infrastructure. Mm-hmm. Uh, and then there's a whole category of financial services that are even slower to adopt technology than other sectors, things like commercial real estate, uh, and insurance. And so those are other areas where you can kind of follow some of the trends that have happened in other sectors and look for opportunities to invest in there. And those markets are, you know, huge markets of an oven in their own. Um, and so those are kind of some of the sectors. Uh, and then, so we talked a little bit about the DNA of the company is very much about the quality of the founders. The sectors are often something that are kind of intersectional. And then in terms of the kind of characteristics, um, regardless of sector that I look for, financial services is just so complex that oftentimes the biggest thing I'm thinking about is like, how do you figure out some unique insight into distribution that allows you to get in front of a lot of potential customers very quickly in a very cost-effective way? And the nice thing about financial services is that there are a lot of existing players that who can potentially be channel partners for various mm-hmm. kinds of endeavors. And when you have sophisticated founders who have been in the ecosystem for a long time, they will identify who those potential kind of uh, channel partners are. So what that means is there's a lot of potential for like kind of connective tissue. And that's why I particularly for like B2B players, I think there's a lot of this. Um, and where I tend to spend a lot of my time is on B2B fintechs. Um, you can figure out really interesting ways of accessing pretty meaningful distribution channels that help you scale the company pretty quickly. So um, if I had to say it's like first about people, uh, the sectors are kind of like the new intersections afforded by you know the digitalization of financial infrastructure. So if you get embedded in new characters and then some of like the characteristics I look for are really about novel insights uh, into distribution. I mean, distribution, uh, distribution is key. I mean, I think uh, as far as your lens on, you know, people who are coming from, um, you know, other companies where they've experienced some of these problems firsthand, I think it's really apt, right? I mean, if you look at like Centilink, Centilink was born out of dealing with fraud problems at a firm or, you know, modern treasury uh, was born out of, you know, solving problems at lending homes. So the sort of experience of like, hey, I'm at this company and, you know, our product is X. And as part of, you know, operationalizing that, we have this really hard problem. Like, oh, wait, solving this hard problem, you know, is could be a business onto itself. And then, yep. you know, you have that next generation of company come from there, you know, and hopefully on uh, and on. 
Um, I know we have just a handful of minutes left. Any advice for early stage founders, either in general or if they're uh, if they're looking to raise money these days? Yeah, I think my, as a community person, my number one thing would be uh, anytime you're looking to solve uh, problems, like yes, do your own research, but also try and find really smart people to talk to who can be uh, helpful in thinking through whatever kind of problems you're you're working on. Um, and then the the great thing too is as you build those relationships, you can rely on them in the future for uh, questions that you may have. So uh, don't think about just answering the questions. Think about who can help you answer them. Um, and then you know if you're a founder, you should definitely check out the Cambrian Slack community. That's a great place to go and find people who can help help you answer kind of important questions. Um, we also do things like co-founder matching, et cetera. So that's probably the the main thing. Um, and then uh, on the, the fundraising side of things, the market has been a little bit weird over the summer, but I can assure you uh, venture capitalists are sitting on record amounts of dry powder, are eager to invest in great founders, and the opportunity is as big as it ever has been. So if you're wondering if now is a good time uh, to start a fintech company, I would argue that yes, uh, it is. And if anything, one of the core kind of constraints, the ability to bring talent on board um, it's, you know, you're not facing as much competition from the FANG mm -hmm. companies as well as the um, scaled uh, tech startups uh, for talent. And so you may have an easier time than six or 12 months ago in terms of actually hiring engineers, among other folks. Uh, they always say the best time to start building is uh, during during a downturn. So I suppose like that is maybe the, the silver lining there. Um, and final question, where can listeners learn more about Cambrian and follow you on social? Yeah, so cambrianhq.com uh, is where you can subscribe to the newsletter, join the Slack group. We also have a YouTube channel where we interview founders from places like Credit Karma, Betterment, Plaid, and more. Um, so cambrianhq.com is the, the best spot. And then uh, my name, Rex Salisbury, if you search that on Twitter, you should be able to, to find me pretty quickly. Uh, and same on, on LinkedIn. All right. That is all the time we have today. Rex, thank you so much for taking the time. Really appreciate it. Jason, thanks so much for having me. And I look forward to reading your, uh, your next post. <laughs> <laughs>